Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major and in this episode we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. We're on chapter 5 and this is part 16 of the reading. And if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week or of course the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 5 continued. At noon, Gypsy Moth was 32 miles off Castle Island, the eastern portal of the Mirapurvu Passage. At her speed of over 8 knots, she should arrive there at 1540. This was exciting navigation. Castle Island and Ackland's Island behind it were low-lying, while there were low rocks on the other side of the Mirapurvu Passage, eight miles to the west of Castle Island. Eight miles sounds like a wide target, but always there were those unpredictable currents and eddies. However, it was a lovely, fine, sunny day, and the sailing fast and joyous. It could have been a dangerous approach, but for the sun. I was able to use the same trick which had put Gypsy Moth on the right heading for the Haiti-Navassa Island Passage, I waited patiently until the sun was on the right bearing, which was at 1421, and then took a sight which showed that Gypsy Moth was off course five degrees to the westward. I altered course accordingly, and at 1535 I sighted the lighthouse ahead. There was no land visible anywhere, nor any buildings, just a mottled brown pin sticking up out of the sea four miles off. Without the position line from the sun, I think it could have been very difficult to find it in daytime without radar. At night, Gypsy Moth sailed into smooth water in the lee of the Kays, rocks and sandbanks stretching for 27 miles from Castle Rock to the southwest end of Acklands Island to the south end of Long Island. Here there was another light, visible eight miles. It was very weak and erratic, but I picked it up at 1909, and from there it was an easy sail 17 miles northwards to the Bird Rock Light at the northwest end of Crooked Island, a good strong light flashing every five seconds with a range of 16 miles. This light was a beam at 21.36. With a great surge of relief and a wonderful feeling of achievement such as only comes rarely to one during a lifetime when some difficult project ends positively and successfully and can be seen to have done just that, I dropped the mizzen and trimmed the remaining sails to come hard up on the wind heading northeast. Gypsy Moth was through the Crooked Island Passage and had escaped from the Caribbean into the broad Atlantic at last. Within five minutes of setting on the new course, I was in my bunk, asleep. It was the end of a four-day marathon. I'd been unable to relax for a hundred hours. Chapter 6. Ambling Eastwards Tuesday, the 2nd of March, 0852. I'm lying in my berth, relaxed, it seems an age since I could rest or let go the tension or allow myself to have a deep sleep. I am sipping nectar. Maybe it appears to be the same old brew of tea, except for having a slice of Nicaraguan lime in it instead of lemon and sugar chipped off a round brick with an ice pick. But to me, this morning, it is nectar. And the biscuit I am eating reminds me of when dear old Jane Beer used to bring me in a cup of tea and two wine biscuits to wake me up when, as a boy in 1909, I was staying with my great-aunt in Devon. Where does all this tension come from, you may well wonder. Why couldn't I just drop the sails and sleep as long as I wanted to while working the passage out of the Caribbean? I think the currents are the chief bandits. 
In the open ocean, they may be inconvenient, but they are seldom dangerous. But among these islands and sandbanks, they are strong and unpredictable. Maybe at X the current will be west going, and 1.5 knots, or sometimes 2.5 knots, but also maybe it will be east going at 3 knots in certain conditions, which can be expected or is sometimes quite unpredictable. For safe navigation in these waters, a sailing vessel needs a constant lookout and plenty of time so that dangerous approaches can be made in daylight. It seemed to me that the currents of the Caribbean are in league with the winds. If an offshore current was tolerable because there was a wind which would enable me to sail away from the breakers, then the wind fell dead calm. If I left the ship sailing safely along the coast while I had some sleep, and even two hours of sleep can seem a heavenly gift at times, as soon as I was oblivious, then the wind swung right around the compass until it was blowing from the opposite direction to try to put Gypsy Moth among the breakers before I awoke. Now, all that was past. I was at large at the edge of the ocean, in calm seas, under the sunshine, and with a light, pleasant breeze. I stood looking at the clumps of sargasso weed, pale yellowy brown, the size of a lily pond, drifting past and opening briefly a straight path for Gypsy Moth to pass through. There followed a delightful sail, such as yachtsmen all hope for, but in most cases only experience in their dreams. Smooth seas, moderate winds, sunshine and mostly fine weather. It is true that Gypsy Moth was on the wind nearly the whole time, sailing as close as she could towards her target, point X, 20 degrees north, 40 degrees west, 2,000 miles due east in the middle of the Atlantic, but I started off determined to enjoy myself. I was not in a hurry because, for one thing, I wanted time to carry out various repairs and experiments before making a speed dash down to the equator. To start with, I had to set up all the rigging afresh. I started a log so that I could keep a record of changes I made. This soon filled up with entries such as took up backstay a further two turns of the bottle screw, trying to cure forward bend or curve in top half of main mast, also curve forward of mizzen mast, and I regret to say I shirked tautening up the topmost stays at the stem head because it is so damn wet there when close hauled. The lifelines are festooned with sargasso weed brought in board in the green water. Actually, the sea was a lovely blue, a tint of ultramarine, and green water, the water coming aboard solid and sweeping the deck, gives the wrong impression. Periodically, far too often, I am amazed at my stupidity. In Gypsy Moth's cabin was a swinging table which used to make me swear. When she was heeled to starboard, the table hit my knees and upset any glasses of water and such like that were on it. When she was heeled to port, the table was at the level of my mouth and I could not see what I was cutting up on my plate without standing up. The other side of the table cannot be used at all because it is far too far from the city. The stupidity in this case is that it had never occurred to me until three and a half months after leaving Plymouth that I had only to sit on one or three cushions when Gypsy Moth was heeled to port to bring me up high enough to eat comfortably. On the 5th of March, after dark, Gypsy Moth was buzzed by a low-flying aircraft. Now, this was a very unusual thing to happen out there, 300 miles from land, and in the dark I thought the pilot might be having engine trouble or had lost his way, so I put on my spreader lights in case the poor fellow had to ditch. The aircraft turned buzzed down again to a height of about 200 feet above Gypsy Moth and then flew off to the north. I wondered what I would have done if he had ditched. I could stop Gypsy Moth 4 in a few lengths, but Gypsy Moth 5 will go on sailing if put aback because of her boomed sails. 
I thought I would make her first pass and drop a lighted boy, and then drop some sails and come back slowly to the boy. Or if I could see whoever it was I was aiming to pick up, I would approach him as if he were a boy. By the 7th of March, Gypsy Moth had sailed 830 miles from Crooked Island. Every spare hour I had been absorbed in analysing the results of the 4,000-mile run and planning my equator dart. Several points stood out which surprised and disappointed me. First, Gypsy Moth was not the flyer I had hoped for. She was little or no faster than most other ocean racers of the same size. Vanquished were my dreams of averaging ten knots. I had never touched ten knots in Gypsy Moth for any one-hour run since she was launched. Occasionally she had surfed up to speeds as high as 17 knots, but only while surfing on the crest of a wave for a period of seconds. It was clear that I should always have quite a task to squeeze a thousand miles out of five days. However carefully I chose my race course, during the 4,000 miles, Gypsy Moth only sailed at nine knots or more on 22 occasions worth recording, over distances which ranged from 2.87 miles to a longest of 41.48 miles. In face of that, it seemed to me remarkable that she had made good 2,000 of the 4,000 in 10 days, 1,017.75 in the last five days and 995.5 in the five-day period during the first half of the passage. 2,013.25 in 10 days is an average of 201.325 per day, or 8.388 knots. On the 9th of March, 11.45am, at a meeting of the ship's company this a.m., the M.O. and chaplain in attendance, captain presiding, it was unanimously agreed on the tactics for the first part of the coming speed trial, namely to sail down the 40th meridian from 20 degrees north to the equator. The medical officer said he was very relieved that the captain had come out of his mental purda and had finished his cerebral ordeal with some result, whatever it might be, and apparently without losing his sanity. He said that the whole crew had been worried about their master being immersed in calculations and rows of figures for day after day to the, he wouldn't say neglect, to the delay in dealing with other matters, which naturally seemed to them much more important. Some of the less understanding of the crew, such as himself, had wondered if the master was doing his nut, or in scientific medical language, gone crackers. The captain ordered an extra round of brandy for all hands and grunted his way below to the security of his cabin. I handled some of the other matters the next day, when I adjusted the backstay and two forestays, the latter an awkward, niggly job at sea in a boat with a narrow, pointed stemhead. I also finished adjusting the starboard fore and aft lower shrouds, after which the mainmast did not look too bad. It did have some curve forward at the top, but I dared not harden up the backstay any more. It was as tight as I cared to see it with a new insulator fitted by Bart at Bluff, of uncertain compression resistance. I also made myself a chart. The Admiralty chart I had for the area took in the whole Atlantic and was much too small in scale. Making a plotting chart is not difficult. The scale must be chosen carefully so that it is large enough to make plotting of DR and astro position lines easy to see and accurate, while being small enough for one sheet to cover a reasonable number of days sailing. I used a sheet of graph paper, chose some meridians of longitude and labelled them at the bottom or top of the sheet, and then mark off the degrees of latitude at the side according to their value in meridional parts given in navigational tables. 
The meridional parts of a parallel of latitude are its distance from the equator in terms of the distance between meridians chosen for that sheet. For example, the meridional parts of 40 degrees north are 2,607.6 and 41 degrees north, 2,686.2. The length of that degree of latitude is 2,686.2 minus 2,607.6, which equals 78.6 minutes of longitude at the scale chosen at the bottom of the chart. I divide each degree of latitude into six parts equaling 10 minutes or miles each, and divide one or two of those into five equal parts of two miles each. For one mile, it is easiest to judge half of a two-mile division. These charts I made were much the most convenient I had for plotting, and gave the most accurate results. Thursday, the 11th of March, 0200. I do not know if all kinds of solitary living have the same effect. The solitary sea life makes me think and feel more that it is comfortable for my peace of mind. I have dreadful attacks of remorse. My chief remorse is for unkind acts to friends in the past. Maybe something deeply wounding that I have said or done. And then I find myself stuck with such things forever. They cannot be undone, and the awful thing is that often they did not mean much to me, nor were they even seriously believed, but were used as a cruel weapon to hurt. Thank heaven I have a lot of jobs and work waiting to be done. Otherwise, if able to lay about with nothing to do but think and feel, I would soon get into a maudlin state, and eventually I can imagine the possibility of finding life too hard and cruel to bear. This life makes one so sympathetic with others in trouble with their conscience or unable to cope with the overwhelming difficulties of their life. I often think of Donald Crowhurst with great sympathy. For me to be nine months alone without aim, project, objective, challenge would mean exposing my soul far too much. I can understand it being damaged or destroyed by continuous considering of it, relentlessly probing of it, I can only stand a very little peep of it now and then. Thank God for activity of body and mind to keep me away from my soul. There was certainly plenty to keep my mind occupied. I wanted to have my big 41-gallon tank of drinking water empty for racing, as it was for the 4,000 miles. There was a misunderstanding somewhere at El Bluff, and my tanks, including the big one, were filled while I was away in Managua. There was no real problem, but in order to empty the 41-gallon tank by the time I started the speed run, I used fresh water as freely as if I had been in a house. I noticed the carpet in the galley and navigation cabin was wet and thought that was due to an overspill from the galley where the pump for the number one tank squirts water into the galley sink, where the pump for the number one tank squirts water into the galley sink unless I cork up the pump pipe when the yacht is heeled over. I had seen water jetting into the sink from this pump pipe and also noticed that the pump itself was leaking. However, one fine day, I took the carpet up to dry it on deck and found water running from a loose pipe connection to a gauge which had been fitted at Buckler's Hard. Suddenly, the big tank pumped dry. But I did not mind that, since I wanted it to be empty before I started my run. The trouble was that I had been drawing freely from the number two tank, which I had intended to top up from the big tank before I started. I sounded the number two tank and found that there were only nine gallons left, plus the full jerry cans and Portuguese water bottles in the forepeak, to last me for about 9,000 miles of sailing back to Plymouth. I immediately rationed the water severely and limited it to drinking, baking, 
watering the mustard and two glassfuls every other day for shaving and washing. But I wanted more water than that, otherwise I should have no pasta or rice because I have found I cannot cook those in seawater as I do the potatoes. I steam the onions on top of the potatoes in a basket gadget which Sheila found for me. And although it is amazing how much washing of oneself one can do with two glassfuls if one tries, besides shaving they provide for an all-over wash with a flannel and a clean of the razor and basin, I like to have fresh water for frequent swab downs in the tropics to get rid of the sea salt on my body which can cause rashes and boils. I also like to wash my clothes with fresh water. I don't use clothes much in the tropics but I was already running short of shirts, shorts and such like so all my brain cells had to be put to work to devise how to provide fresh water. Friday the 12th of March, noon. 600 miles to go to point X. It looks as if a calm day is needed to finish off the chores which remain to be done before the speed trial. Inspecting the batteries for water, adjustments to the life raft, sewing the mizzen staysail batten pockets, finishing the rigging adjustments and taking up the cap shrouds. The next morning, Gypsy Moth was still making heavy weather of it, hard on the wind with some hefty seas coming aboard forward. The jumper strut bottle screw, which Bart repaired for me, came adrift and the wire began to flail about at the end of a jumper strut like a whip with the bottle screw attached. The bottle screw weighs about half a pound and I feared it would damage the topsail track and other gear attached to the mast or jam up the halyards. When the bottle screw first parted during the 4,000 mile run, only the broken screw eye was attached to the jumper stay end and that was bad enough, but now the barrel of the bottle screw a solid lump of bronze was thrashing about. I wished I had my bosun's chair tackle rigged up. I used it always in Gypsy Moth 3 and Gypsy Moth 4, but even that is no joke if the mast is pitching quickly. However, I had not got it, so I would have to climb up the mast to the cross trees or above to secure the bottle screw, but I did not want to go up in this rough weather if I could help it. As the cross trees on the gypsy moth are reached, there is one place where it is decidedly tricky to hold up in a seaway. There is one narrow foothold just wide enough to take my toes and a single handhold vertically above it. Rolling is not so bad, but at every pitch my whole body is wrenched forwards or aft from those holds. That night the second jumper stay broke adrift and joined in the fun of flogging the mast. But conditions were too bad still to attempt to climb up to them I just had to bear the agony as best I could. I was also worrying about sargasso weed damaging the self-steering skeg and rudder. Although with gypsy moth clearing a path it was difficult to see how the skeg could get entangled in a clump, the fact remained that it was continually picking up small clumps of weed which straddled it and would not come off. Presumably more and more piled up until the heap overbalanced to one side or the other and pulled away. This strained the self-steering gear and of course interfered with the steering control. By noon on the 15th of March, Point X was to the southeast, nearly in the eye of the wind, with Gypsy Moth hard on the wind heading east about 240 miles from the 40th meridian. The port tack to the south would be a little more favourable, but I rather wanted to arrive north of Point X, from where Gypsy Moth would be on the southerly heading of the speed run and would be getting trimmed up for it. It was interesting how the hydrographers differed. The American pilot chart shows for this area averages of nearly the same amount of wind from every octant of the compass rose, whereas the British routing chart shows wind from every point on the eastern half 
but either very little or a negligible amount from the western half. I usually go by the British chart nowadays because it gives more details than the American charts, but let me pay tribute to the great American Lieutenant Maury of the US Navy, who conceived the idea of these wonderfully useful charts, and to the United States Hydrographic Office for collecting data for their charts for a hundred years longer than we have. It is always much easier to climb onto a pioneer's back. Shortly after noon, I got ready a bag of tools, shackles, cordage and so on to have a go at the jumper stays, but then a wide belt of rain squalls started going through. The stays were flailing about like a cat and nine tails with a bottle screw at the end of each, periodically twining together. But I had waited this long, and I was not going into that sort of weather, unless I really had to. In one squall, I rigged the rain-catching gadget I had devised to the boom of the mizzen, but it only rained for a minute and was blowing so hard that with the heel, the boom was sloping down to the water and all the water ran down it instead of towards the mast where I had planned to catch it. There was too much wind to top up the boom end and make the water run inboard. Once I got to the doldrums at the equator, there would be plenty of heavy rain with no wind, but 1,600 miles was a long way to go for a drink. I noted at midnight that Gypsy Moth had sailed 3,540 miles since leaving Bluff, mostly on the wind, and 10,934 miles since leaving Plymouth. Also that the wind was back again at 22 knots, and that it had the persistent whining note which says, Take care, for I am a lot stronger than I seem to be. Well that's all for today, I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly, and remember of course you've got all the content over on YouTube, and the Mariner podcast, and of course Patreon, at patreon.com forward slash the mariner but for now wherever you are and whatever you're doing i hope that you're safe and sound and i look forward to speaking to you in the next one cheers <laughs>